Now all across North Carolina, it's Carolina Newsmakers. Here's your host, Don Curtis. You know, when I look back on my life, I'm going to think back on people that were unique and different and uh, 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 very much a part of my life, but unique and different. And our guest today is one of those who falls in that category. As a matter of fact, he may be at the top of uniqueness, and that is one Rufus Edmondson, who is uh, a longtime friend of mine. We go back all the way to our days at Carolina, and and he, I mean, uh, Rufus has had one of the most interesting lives I can imagine. You've been all over the board, and before I start letting Rufus talk, he's written a book called That's Rufus, a memoir of, of Tar Heel politics, Watergate, and public life, and I can't wait to read it. Well, Don, the you, thing about you and me in Carolina I did a little bit better than you did. You made a string of about 30-some Cs, but what did you say? Oh, no, I had some Ds and Bs mixed in with it. Oh, you did? I, yeah, well, that I that you was Hugh McCall that made the straight Cs. Yeah, he said that everything over a C was wasted. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> a lot of you guys, that uh, when I was in school, you had aspirations of going to law school, which you did, and or med school or dental school or some other post I didn't, and so I felt like, well, you know. And, of course, it, back in those days, a C was a little bit more uh, – fashionable than his C is today. I college. think Brother Don's done pretty well, don't you, Jason? I, I well, think in the annals of North Carolina business world and philanthropy and just plain old goodness that that uh, Don Curtis will go down in history as one of the best. Well, you're kind to say that, but uh, let's get back to you. Uh, when you were born and raised in Boone, North Carolina, in the mountains of North Carolina, uh, when did you sort of think that you might as uh, Bill Friday would say, amount to something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I grew up in a farm family. My daddy was a wildlife protector. We farmed on the side. Five boys and one girl. Sort of hard scrabble life, but we we didn't. They, by today's standards, they would have said we were poor, but we weren't poor because you're rich when you have such a wonderful mom and daddy, and you have church friends, and you've got your uh, association with all your kin folks. And back in those days. Life centered in a rural community like Boone, your, your life centered around your church and your school and what you did at home. And I sort of, I guess, along about high school, I thought I might amount to something because I started getting elected to class presidents uh, all three years and then student body president the fourth year. But that really doesn't mean anything. That's sort of a popularity contest. Then uh, when I Went to Carolina, I thought, well, that was a tough time. I, I was more into uh, being in the Rat Sculler. That's a little beer joint, to tell you the truth, that was underground that was a wonderful place, except when you drank too much beer. And I mentioned that in the book, Don, about my first night at Carolina and what I did. I, I really sort of hate to bring that back up, but it was <laughs> not a good night on getting back to Avery Dorm after being in the Rat Sculler. But then I... I first started thinking I might amount to something when I met this wonderful man named Senator Sam Irvin, and I knew that I wanted to do something similar to what he was doing, and that was along about my senior year in high school and my years in college, and realized that you can make a great impart on something if you if you pick yourself a good mentor and try to pick your own friends and not let people pick you as their friends. It takes a lifetime of learning, Don, sometimes to learn some basic uh, elements in life, and I 
I, throughout the book, I've tried to say that pick your friends, don't let them pick you, because sometimes you have people that pick themselves and they're pretty bad friends. Uh, practice empathy in life. Try to put yourself in somebody's shoes, and like my mother used to say, listen, because if you're not listening, you're not hearing anything. If you're talking, you don't hear anything. And put yourself in other people's shoes and realize that you are very blessed. And she said, whatever you do, don't forget to thank those who help you get where you are. And once you thank them, thank them again. And then she said, and do not develop. She didn't call it hubris. Now, this hubris thing will get you every time. You start thinking that you're better than other people, that you can get by with this and that. I went through one of those spells, and I paid for it dearly. But I learned something from it. And then the last thing that I've tried to point out in the book is you've got to have some sort of spirituality to exist in this world. If you don't, you're not going to be anchored to anything. And I, that's a long way of saying how I came about maybe thinking I might amount to something, Don. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, but your career has been so varied. Let's talk a little bit uh, about your 10 years with uh, Senator Sam Irwin and talk about him because, again, that, that privilege of being with one of the most, uh, another of the most unfor- uh, unforgettable characters I've known, and I didn't know him nearly like you did, but Senator Sam was a unique person, a brilliant mind, uh, and uh, I'm sure – that uh, your 10 years with him was, was something special. Oh, it was so special. You know, grew up there. He grew up in sort of the foothills like Belmont of uh, North Carolina and was and loved Gaston County, by the way. He had many, many friends there. I remember his lawyer friends. He said that he, had, he adored going to court in Gaston County because he had so many characters in it. Yeah. But being around Senator Irvin was like being the master teacher he had so much knowledge that he <clears throat> uh, I, I used to say for instance that i could go to school for law school for a month and sit at his feet on a on a car trip for half an hour and learn as much as i did in the, in the 6 months in law school that's just how much he knew and how much he imparted but he never tried to impose his will on somebody else he would give you the alternatives and just just traveling with a man like that i remember one time in the, uh, and I mentioned this in the book, uh, we were traveling in 1968 on a campaign trip, and uh, we had come to the end of the day after a long day of visiting courthouses, and we were in Chatham, Chatham County, and there was this old hotel there. For some reason, the the secretary had not made provisions for us to have a a night to stay or a place to stay that night. And there was an old hotel on what is now a, a business office on the, the square, I bet you've seen it, of Pittsburgh. And he said, well, let's check and see if you got a room there. Well, I checked in for us, and the man said, we got one room left. It's got one bed in it. <laughs> now, I had been accustomed to staying with Senator Irvin in a room with two beds in it for a long time over the 10-year period. Well, I thought my my Lord, I, I, what am I going to do? Well, anyway, I took the thing, and, and it just happens that the senator had one of the, the biggest snoring problems in the world to begin with. He had adenoids that sounded like a freight train coming out of Morganton toward Gastonia. And I thought, okay, how are we going to handle this? Because here, I, it's nothing unusual for 
for country boys to sleep in the same bed, uh, bunked up. We used to, when I grew up, we slept three to a bed when I was there. But now sleeping, I, I thought to myself, this is going to be like sleeping with God. <laughs> and I thought, oh, Lord, what will I do? Well, I position myself in the bed after we'd had, very frankly, uh, the senator liked to have a little relaxation with a bourbon and, and ginger ale, as he called it. And uh, I thought, now, I don't want to touch Senator Irvin. How, how, I, I, I just can't bear to touch God. <laughs> and so I positioned myself on that bed with one hip on and one hip off and one foot, one foot on the bed and one foot in the bed and tried my best to angle that son. But every time he would get into a rolling spell, he'd roll over and hit me and think, oh, God, oh, God, please, please deliver me from this this." This, this affliction that I have here, I, I, I just can't take it anymore. So I, I finally got up, went into the little bathroom, took some she, uh, took some uh, an old blanket out of the little bitty tiny closet, put it in the bathtub because there wasn't enough room on the bathroom floor to lie down, put it in the bathroom, and slept in that bathtub for four or five hours. <laughs> and I, I re- label that as my night of sleeping with God. It didn't quite work. <laughs> And little close things like that, you get to know a man, and you get to know how how he feels about things. Uh, I remember he had very arthritic hands, and sometimes he couldn't button his collar, and I would button his shirt for him. And when you when you do intimate things like that, you 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 get to know a person. And they used to say that oh, Senator Irvin was a uh, since he did did not agree on all civil rights bills that he was a bigot. Well. You know, I think I would know if he were a bigot. I never heard him say the N-word one entire time when we were we were on trips, and that's when it w- would happen if it did. And I, I and his kindness and decency. Now he had he lived in a different world, Don. It was a a world of the latter part of the nineteenth uh, century, where he he might have had what what is that word we call it uh, uh, when you. So you, 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 like he, I, I'm, re, I'm rec- reminded of the the movie The Help. Yeah, and he had the, he was one of the good people in The Help. When when the 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 lady maid died, Senator Irvin's will had made provision for her and her husband. Uh, some people think that's a kind of condensation or condensation, but it's not. Uh, I got to know the man and. And it was if there was ever anybody that I can look up to as the most respected man in political life or other kind of life other than my daddy, it would be Sam J. Irvin Jr. Well, now he also, of course, uh, was known, and we've got about a minute uh, and a half left in this segment. Uh, but he was quite an authority on the Constitution, probably uh, in the Senate at that time, probably the authority on the oh, Constitution. Oh, everybody knew they, they would refer everything to Senator Sam Irvin, and that's why Senator Mansfield appointed him as the chair of the Watergate Committee because he said he knew so much about the Constitution. And he could quote that in the Shakespeare and the Bible all in one sentence. And did often. And did often. <laughs> Well, we're, we're going to talk about the Watergate experience because that's another uh, interesting part of your life, uh, and we've talked about it before, but it, it's just one of the most fascinating things And uh, as history continues to write uh, itself uh, about that era. Uh, th- those moments are uh, chapters 1 through 10, at least, of that, that era. 
Uh, our guest is Rufus Edmondson. He has recently written a book. That's Rufus. And we're talking about that on this edition of Carolina Newsmakers. And we'll be back right after these messages. The entire world watched. They watched each step down the rungs of that small ladder, one after another, and waited with great anticipation for that last step. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. At that moment, humanity saw the impossible become the possible. And today, the sky is not the limit. Achievement. Pass it on. A message from the Foundation for a Better Life. We continue with Carolina Newsmakers. Here's Don Curtis. We're back with Rufus Edmondson, uh, who is uh, in law practice at the present time. But uh, as we said when we opened the program, has had a very interesting career. He served as North Carolina's Attorney General, elected in 1974. And you were, what, Attorney General two terms or three? I was Attorney General two and a half terms because the first the first term was a two-year term to fill out Robert Morgan's unexpired term because he went on to the yeah. Senate. And then, of course, you were Secretary of State. And, of course, you've run for governor. And as I've said uh, in the introduction of the program, uh, that uh, coupled with your time on the Watergate uh, uh, commission and all that sort of thing just is a fascinating uh, career and background and I'm sure it's all well chroni- uh, chronicled in this book that's Rufus a memoir of Tar Heel politics Watergate and public life so uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, your time as attorney general uh, what interested you in being attorney general in North Carolina uh, because you were situated in Washington with Senator Sam Irwin, and uh, you'd been with him 10 years, and you come back to North Carolina and run for attorney general. What- well, that job had always intrigued me because, Don, it sort of monitored the things I'd been doing with Senator Irvin, studying the Constitution, helping hold hearings, investigating, and it just seemed to be a, a perfect fit for me. And I know that was a big leap there to all of a sudden say, well, I'm going to start at the top, and I'm going to run for attorney general. But there was an opening. Uh, that, that's another good reason I ran. There was an opening. And uh, I had to get the nomination for the, the first time th- through the State Democratic Executive Committee, which was composed of over 400 people. And that was like campaigning statewide. And in the meantime, Senator uh, Governor Holzhauser had appointed uh, Also person, from Boone, by the way. Also from Boone. had appointed a, a, a guy from... Uh, Charlotte named Jim Carson to the Attorney General. So I had an opponent in that that November in 1974. So I won that two-year term and then subsequent terms on out there. But I often said that I enjoyed being Attorney General more than anything I've ever done, including even Watergate, because you could get things done. Uh, The Attorney General's office afforded you the, the the, 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 the euphoric feeling of knowing that you helped somebody get their money back from some some shyster. Uh, people come up to me today and even say, I remember when you helped me get my money back from that that shoddy car deal I made in, in 1982 or, or something like that. And, I, and it makes me feel proud. And, and also during that time too, Don, in the early years of the Attorney General's office was, was the fact that, that we made to save the New River, help save the New River. And I got to work alongside Senator Irvin in our both respective offices, he was still in the Senate, and I was Attorney General. And you imagine me there at, at a at a House in uh, House Congressional Committee testifying alongside Senator Irvin. Now that was the thrill of a lifetime. 
not that I was equal now. I don't, I don't want anybody to believe that I ever thought I was equal to Senator Irvin, but helping save the New River, which I, I still see when I go back to visit the home place that ran on, through our farm, and, and we f- swam in that. I didn't swim much because I never learned to swim, so I couldn't become an Eagle Scout. One of the, one of the regrets I had, John, I, Don, I, and I bet you've been an Eagle Scout. No. I, one of the regrets class. I had was that I never could make Eagle Scout because I couldn't do life-saving. Well, I, I couldn't get my second class for the same reason. <laughs> let, me, let me ask you a question. Oh, did, he's did, admitted it. Yeah. What, what, one did, of us. I, I have my – I have – Few uh, a few problems in my background, and I'm not nearly as perfect as I like to think I am. <laughs> and, and I'm not nearly, uh, you know, I am. I am, uh, of course, a person of great modesty. But but other than that, <laughs> why uh, is Jason laughing at both? Well, of them? I don't know. Uh, but going back to Boone, though, uh, has there ever been a small town the size of Boone that has had two such distinguished uh, statesmen, uh, Jim Holzhauser and you? To come out of a small town, and did you know each other growing up? Yes, we did. Uh, he he went to school with with my brother and my two, uh, my brother and my sister. In fact, he knew all all the whole family. His father was a very respected attorney, and I knew him well too. And just a spli- a fine, splendid individual. And we never had any fusses when I was attorney general. And he was governor. We had no fusses. I I one time made a quip when I was running for attorney general. I said. Well, this is your chance to give Boone another chance, but I was only kidding. Yeah. And he, he said, I hope you were kidding. I said, well, of course I was, Governor. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so at one time, Boone, North Carolina, a population then about seven, seven or 8,000, not counting students, I guess, had uh, both the Attorney General and the Governor from the same city. Right. That's, a, that's unusual. Truly unusual because we, we often think Charlotte tries to rule the state, but it was actually Boone running the state. Boone was Boone was helping run the state at that time. Yes. Okay, so uh, uh, getting back to uh, serving as Attorney General, then of course you decided to run for governor uh, when in nineteen what was that nineteen eighty four eighty four yeah, uh, and what what was behind that decision? Boy, well, and 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 what would you do differently if you ran for governor again? Well. What the, the what was behind that decision was that it was time because Jim Hunt had got the right to succeed himself for the first time and then serve two terms that that had never been in North Carolina before and so we all piled up and I knew that that I, it was it was time to run now secondly what would I do before I wouldn't have run yeah if I could go back and do it I would have waited another term. Or, or whenever I needed to wait, because it was the worst year that anybody on the Democratic ticket could run for uh, governor of North Carolina. First of all, we had a bitter primary. Oh, that thing was so bitter, Don. We had about 10 candidates. I mean, crazies like the Ku Klux Klan guy, uh, just hordes of us, and it was a bitter, a bitter primary. Uh, I came out of the primary victorious after, after two runoffs, had to, you, you had to have 50% at that time. And so Eddie Knox and I were in the runoff together, and, and uh, his folks didn't, didn't uh, come with me. And he and, he and Tom Gilmore and uh, Jimmy Green all uh, went with uh, Governor Martin and with uh, 
Jesse Helms and Ronald Reagan, so it was a bad year. But I want to say this on radio. I don't think I've ever said it before. What a decent individual Jim Martin was and is. I do not believe, Don, that Jim Martin ever said an ugly word about me. I know I didn't him. And just a perfect gentleman. And here's another little coincidence in in, uh, history. Uh, I'm probably one of the few people that was beaten by a governor and then served with him when I was elected Secretary of State. Yeah, yeah. And so we got along fabulously. We've talked about the Watergate Commission a number of times, but those were certainly interesting times. I was riveted to the television screen during those hearings. It was a fascinating period of time. And, of course, uh, there you were sitting right behind the senator. And um, we've talked about uh, so many of the things, but one of the most interesting things that occurred during that period of time was when you found out about the, the taping system. Uh, tell us how that happened. Yeah, but you know, Don, that, that has another North Carolina connection to it. Our friend Gene Boyce, a very prominent attorney and friend of yours, was up there working as uh, uh, one of the associate counsels for the Watergate Committee. And as we did with all witnesses, before they went on the stand publicly before the American people, they were in executive session because every lawyer will tell you that don't ask a question unless you know what the answer is going to be. So we... I wasn't in there. Gene and his crew had a man named Alexander Butterfield in in executive session. And because of Gene's quick thinking and knowing that he he had taken a cue from something that John Dean said about the – John Dean said one time, I thought I was being taped in the White House when I was with Nixon. And so uh, Gene Boyce's crew – asked the question of Alexander Butterfield, is there a taping system in the White House? And he revealed it was, and that was one of the one of the strongest points toward the downfall of Nixon. And, and remember, John Dean had been saying all along that the president was guilty up to his eyeballs. And so when the taping system was revealed, uh, that would tell the whole story, but we had to, get, had to get, get a hold of the tapes. And that's when I came into play, when Senator Urban at one point uh, called Richard Nixon and said, Mr. President, why don't you give up those tapes voluntarily? He said, no, I will not. They're they're executive privilege. And Senator Urban said, that's executive poppycock (laughs) is the word he used. And so then I took it upon myself to uh, deliver the subpoena, which was the first time, Don, in history of the country that a committee of the Congress had subpoenaed a sitting president. And I'll never forget that day. It was the hottest uh, sweltering day in July the 23rd, 1973. I, I could hardly breathe in the back of a police car. And somebody said, well, you, I guess you were back there this time for something decent. I said, well, you don't need to go into that now. I was, I was there legally. And One of the things I've always wanted to ask you about that is, now, uh, of course, the, 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 the contents of the tape, tapes were extremely damaging, and uh, as you said Probably uh, uh, was the downfall of the pre- what was the downfall of the president? No question about that. So, uh, if when the tapes had been disclosed, the taping system, if Richard Nixon had said, "Wait a minute, those were private conversations. The other people didn't know they were being taped. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them." You know what? And, and had destroyed them. In other words, made it past tense. Okay, what would have happened at that point, Don? I think he could have done that, and I'm. Not many lawyers agree with me. He, he could have done it. And 
not suffered any consequences. I think. I think it was not his. anywhere close to what ultimately no, happened. No, no. He, he, I, I think he could have destroyed the tapes, his personal property, his own, his own recordings, and he was he was allowed to do that as long as one party to a conversation knows that it's being taped. It's legal. And I think to this day we would not have solved Watergate whatsoever because all you would have had would have been the word of John Dean that the president knew it, and I do not think you would have had anybody removed removed from office but for the discovery of the tapes. And I think Nixon could have discovered the could have destroyed them. Uh, but you know what his 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 self worth, and he thought so much of himself that he couldn't bear. Don to destroy his own words because he thought he'd be losing such a great part of history, and so he outpreserved himself. He 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 by not destroying those tapes led to his uh, I'm going to call it excommunication from office because he knew that if he he had been told by the Republican Party that if if he didn't leave he would be impeached and he would be then convicted in the Senate. And I remember one of them, Barry Goldwater, said, and I'd be one to vote for it. Yeah. So that's a great difference in what's happening today about all this impeachment talk and this and that. You you, you had a Senate that had some people in there that, that thought through the issues. Uh, so we, we have a lot of parallels, and we have not a lot of parallels. Well, it's so interesting that, uh, of course, Nixon knew exactly what was on the tapes, and he knew if it ever came out, he was toast. And that's the reason I just wonder why he just didn't. He, ne- he never believed on that the Supreme Court would vote to let to let them uh, divulge the tapes. Right. And of course, the Supreme Court voted eight to zero. One person recused themselves. I keep hearing people on TV talk about it, it was nine to zero. It was eight to zero because one person uh, decided not to vote on it for a conflict. And he never believed that the court would order those tapes released. When were you in? When we finally got the tapes, were you in listening? To, did, did you actually listen to some? I of listened them? to some of them, and they are hilarious. He, he's funny. He he has these uh, fits of, of dislike of people. And I used to say he can outcuss my aunt Jenny when she was alive. Now she could do some cussing, <laughs> especially when a fox would get in the hen house and get some some hens. Aunt Jenny, but Aunt Jenny, okay. she she could do some cussing, okay. and this guy could really do some cussing, and he didn't like particular people, particular uh, race, racial uh, people. Uh, he obviously didn't like the Jewish people. Uh, he was a very vain man, and and as Senator Irvin said, Nixon was afraid of freedom. Uh, I've later learned what Senator Irvin meant by that. Nixon was afraid that people might get to know him. Yeah. Well, he was. Uh, he was certainly. Uh, you know, why? Why is it that we have this uh, propensity to elect people uh, that uh, uh, are so vain? <laughs> I mean, really. I and mean, of course, I guess uh, you know you have to have some. Uh, uh, ego to run for office in the first place uh, well you've got to have some ego but it can be overriding reason and because i mean i think even the most ardent uh donald trump fan will admit that he is certainly full of himself um whether they like him or not and not the only thing he's full of but i didn't say that now you i didn't either much <laughs> 
but uh, but we have we uh, for some reason or other the electorate falls in love with these people. Well, a certain a certain set of people, and I have plenty of friends. That that's why I'm not being partisan here. I have plenty of friends who are great supporters of Donald Trump, and they say, "Well, that's just the way he is." Well, sometimes the way you are gets gets in the way of being a good diplomat or being a good president, and so that's for other people to judge and not me. Rufus Edmondson and his new book, that's Rufus, A Memoir of Tar Heel Politics, Watergate, and Public Life. I'm assuming this copy is mine. Uh, You're correct on that. And I want you to autograph it before you leave, and then I'm looking forward to reading it because I think I've gone through a lot of this uh, whole time period, and it's going to be fascinating for me. Our program has been produced by Jason Kong, and he'll have another interesting guest for us. If you'd like to hear a repeat of this broadcast, you can go to carolinanewsmakers.com and do just that, or if you'd like to share it with a friend. That's carolinanewsmakers.com. And we'll be back again next week at same time, same station, with another edition of Carolina Newsmakers. Till next week, have a nice week, everybody. Carolina Newsmakers is a production of NCN and is heard each week on a network of North Carolina's leading radio stations. To hear a repeat of this broadcast, go to carolinanewsmakers.com. Carolina Newsmakers is produced by Jason Kong. Network engineer is Alan Sherrill. I'm Scott Fitzgerald inviting you to join us again next week, same time, for Carolina Newsmakers. Newsmakers.